We're going to do a little mini teaching series for the next three weeks. We're in, uh, we're in, we're leading up to Easter. Um, uh, I've called this little series "The Road to Easter: The Dawn of a New World," um, because that, in a sense, as Christians who live in the story of Jesus, we do believe that the resurrection of Jesus ushered in a completely new world. So we're going to move our way through towards that. So Ryan and Stephanie and myself, over the next three, four weeks, we're going to be teaching around some of this stuff. But today we're going to look at this episode in the life of Jesus that I think is really significant for us. Um, it sort of happens before, we've been in a series, as you know, called the Beatitudes, or with the Upside Down, which is the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5. Before we move forward into uh, Easter, we're going to take a step back and look at this little incident, this little moment in Jesus' life in Matthew 4. So open your, open your Bibles. You've got a Bible on your phone, you've got your app, you've got Bibles on your, t- on your tables. Open up to Matthew chapter 4. So I'd love us to look into what God might have for us in the scriptures today. Um, just to set the scene, in Matthew 3, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. And so he hasn't started his ministry at this point. He hasn't called his disciples at this point. He hasn't got up the hill and delivered his manifesto at this point. This is before everything uh, ha- everything else uh, that we know about Jesus' life begins. This is the moment before that. Let me read Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I'm going to talk about three things today. Bread, circus, empire. Bread, circus, empire. Hold that in your mind. This week, I was watching the trailer of a new movie coming out called The Joker. I don't know if everyone saw this, but there's a new movie, another movie about The Joker being made. Joaquin Phoenix is starring as that infamous arch enemy of Batman. And uh, I think aside from being another exploration of that character, we've seen so many of them. I remember the original Batman on TV with uh, Adam West. Is that the one? I love that. Um, But aside from this just being another take on that, they seem to have done something really interesting, which is that they've broken some comic book rules, and they're actually going back to explore, I suppose, the backstory of the enemy, the arch enemy in the comic book. They're going back in this movie, The Joker, to explore the backstory of The Joker, the origins story, I suppose. 
showing just how a man could unravel psychologically and become like this terrorist, this agent of, of crazy evil. Um, and I love stories like that, those origin stories. You get them all in the comic book um, franchises. Um, I think we sort of all do because I think our curiosity sort of gets the better of us a little bit. We want to know how people got to where they got to, how they ended up to where they ended up. Maybe because we're looking for a little morsel of wisdom or something to help us on our own path or maybe we just want to remember that they seem special or different or extreme in a sense but in a sense they start out just like like us my wife Beth at the moment she's reading the Michelle Obama um, biography and I suppose her curiosity my curiosity would be about how did, how did the Obamas become the Obamas and there's all, all different types of leaders or people of influence in the world that were curious about how did they end up yeah, they might not just be like the Joker. They might not be like an arch enemy of terror. They might be someone who's actually doing some good in the world. But we want to know, like, how did they come to be the way they came to be? And in a way, the passage that we just read in Matthew 4, it's a wee bit like Jesus, the man from Nazareth, backstory, his origins story, as it were. It certainly would be a key scene in the movie about Jesus. And I'm sure it has been. This is just after we've seen the man Jesus from that backwater town, as I've said, of Nazareth come and be baptized by John the Baptist. And in that instance, God the Father declares something over Jesus. Again, he's just a man called Jesus. Nobody knows who he is at this point. And the Father declares over him, my son whom I love and I'm well pleased and the spirit descends on Christ, on Jesus. Let me get my language right. In the form of light and a dove. And Jesus' identity, in a sense, is confirmed to himself and to those around him. Deep in his soul, he knows that he is beloved son of God. And what his mission will be to the world. Because John the Baptist up to this point has been proclaiming this good news in a sense that the kingdom of heaven is near because well why has he been preaching that because the man Jesus the man Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke about the one who would come to forgive the people from their sins and deliver them he would be the messiah of the Jews and yet no one knows this Jesus he'd not done any teachings or miracles or called his disciples or anything like that but Here he was, baptized, ready to go. Surely the mission of Messiah can begin to put this world back to order. Not quite, not quite. Because following the baptism, we get to this checkpoint in Jesus' story, like a crossroads, as it were. Before Jesus gets onto the road that would ultimately lead him to the cross, the road to Easter, I suppose, He's at this checkpoint in Matthew 4 where he is going to be scrutinized. He'd arrived at the frontier of his ministry. I think it's like a checkpoint between two different worlds. The world before Jesus the Christ and the world with Jesus the Christ as the revealed word of God. The dawning of a new world was upon us. So here we have Jesus led into the wilderness the Judean wilderness for 40 days of prayer and fasting. And in a sense, well, why is he doing this? It's, I suppose when you think about where it sits in the story, he's being prepared for public ministry 
rugged, arid wilderness, fasting, praying, pushing himself to the limits because he's preparing to launch a ministry that would change the world. He's been in this, as I said, this backwater town of Nazareth where nothing really good comes out of it, so they say. He's heard John the Baptist preaching, that, 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 that pre- preaching about the good news and the kingdom is, is to come. He's heard him preaching, and now Jesus is ready to take on the mantle of Messiah to bring the kingdom of God. But how? How is he going to do this? And I think this is maybe what Jesus is doing here. He's gone into the desert, the wilderness. He's been led by the Spirit to pray, to fast, to meditate. You could imagine him getting ready, thinking about the mission that lies before him. Preparing himself, how am I going to bring the reign of God into the world? How am I going to do that? How am I going to bring this alternative kingdom into the world? How am I going to deliver this alternative government of God to earth? And so at the end of those 40 days, here we have these three great temptations by the devil. Or the tempter, as it says in verse 2. Now, let's just clear up a couple of things. I'm not going to clear them up, but I'm going to give you some thoughts around deserts and devils. Hopefully the screen will come up. Let's talk about the wilderness for a moment because it's really significant that Jesus led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights because in a sense that parallels with the story of Israel led into the wilderness for 40 years. The wilderness of Sinai. Do you remember the story of Moses when he delivers the people from Egypt, from Pharaoh, through the Red Sea and into the wilderness and they're there for 40 years and they have a whole bunch of tests and trials and they fail them? Well, this is not going to happen this time because Jesus is going to pass the tests in the desert. I actually spent time in the Syrian desert in 2004. I think there's a photo. I actually found it. It's the only photo I could get off the camera that I used. I went out with um, to, to visit with Dan Larkin's older brother who spent some time out there. And this is, I guess, the photo of us, well, photo of me in the desert. It was um, an amazing experience. But if you've ever been in the desert, uh, you'll know that it's not a very habit- habitable place. I spent the night in a Christian monastery. I spent some time around campfires, camping out in the desert. Cold, dark, not very habitable at all. And I actually do remember genuinely thinking, this is what the desert is like. It's never really been to places arid as that, I suppose. Thinking about what must it have been like for the Israelites to spend 40 years in that kind of environment. This is the kind of environment that Jesus has been sent into. The story of Israel in the wilderness, as I said, is one of failure. It's a story of being tested and given into temptations. But Jesus here, he's paralleling that. But he's not going to parallel the failure. We're going to find out how that goes about. Like David, like Israel's great champion who's sent out onto the battlefield to face his great enemy, Goliath. The newly appointed king of Israel, David, who faces the challenger to God's reign. Jesus is... God's newly appointed king in waiting who's sent to face the enemy. Interesting parallels with the wilderness picture. What about the devil? The devil's mentioned in this passage. Devil's a weird one really, isn't it? Because I, I don't know about you, we sort of start to think about like, maybe go back to the previous slide, um, like little horned creature with like a pitchfork. This isn't the red creature with a pitchfork, by the way. He's not like 
this little red devil playing deal or no deal with Jesus in the, in the desert. That's not what's going on. Because to be honest, that would just be like a satirical parody, really, of the, of the reality of what Jesus is really going through. Was the devil a distinct creature? Who knows? Perhaps. Certainly, it's, the, the enemy is personified in this passage as the devil. And I will use the term the devil throughout, but I'm not necessarily referring to that. I uh, noticed an interesting movie starring Ewan McGregor um, called The Last Days in the Desert. And interestingly, Ewan plays both Jesus and the devil in that little movie, um, sort of depicting, I suppose, maybe the sense that Jesus was fighting against himself or wrestling against something uh, in him or affecting him and his mind. I don't know. It's interesting to think about it, but certainly it frames the temptations much more like a mental battle because Jesus is human. Jesus is in his humanity in this moment. So perhaps the temptations have come like dark thoughts in his mind, but like the enemy might come to you or to me. And remember, Jesus is at the end of 40 days. He's hungry. The tempter comes to you and me sometimes often just in the depths of our thinking. Maybe that's helpful for you. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But it's certainly serious and a convincing way perhaps to think about what's really going on with Jesus. He seriously wrestles with what is before him. He's really human. He's really in the desert. He's really being tempted. There's much for us to learn. So bread, circus, empire. Let's take a look at the three dark alternatives for Jesus in this passage. Number one, bread. End of 40 days, the devil tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread. Interestingly, he begins with, if you're God's son, do this. If you're God's son, do this. Which is nearly like a direct attack comparison to the passage when Jesus was getting baptized, when the father declared over Jesus, this is my son who I love and I'm well pleased. The devil comes up and goes, if you're God's son. And I suppose the tempter is not tempting Jesus to to doubt that in a sense, but perhaps to use it for his own advantage. You're hungry, Jesus. Just turn the stones to bread. Jesus is at his edge. He's at his limit. He's hungry. 40 days have passed. What's going on here? Here's what I want to share with this morning. I think there's much more going on here than just, just immediate hunger. Temptation for Christ here was all to do with how he might bring about his kingdom, how he might answer that question of bringing the reign of the kingdom of God into the earth. And I think it's to do with perhaps this idea of meeting needs, physical, material needs, immediate felt needs. Instantly Jesus recognizes this as, and I don't use the word lightly, satanic. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hunger is really important. Immediate needs, really important. But focus on this alone and it's just not enough. Jesus knows this. And he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 when he says this. In a sense, he's, he's just behaving the way that we would behave, engaging with the scriptures as a human. He's not leaning into his um, 
identity as God's son, I suppose. He's leaning into his identity as God's son. He's not leaning into the power that would come with being in some way divine. So bread, yes, it's a good idea. But the idea that this is all we need to have a meaningful existence is not a good idea. The temptation comes as a good idea in your thinking. It's really good to feed yourself with bread. It's a good idea. But the human soul will collapse if it's the only thing that you're leaning into. We need, as Jesus has said here, the word of God to feed our hunger. We need God to feed our souls. Jesus knew this and he resists the appeal to be a Messiah that would simply give people what they want. Blaise Pascal, he said that there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of man. G.K. Chesterton said that the man who rings the bell of the brothel unconsciously does so seeking God. Seeking to have hunger met is not enough for our souls apart from our appetite for God. It's God himself that we need to seek if we want to see God's kingdom come. It wasn't enough for Jesus to take this temptation and simply try to meet the needs of the world, simply try to do the love your neighbor as yourself bit, but to actually do the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor. If Jesus was gonna bring the kingdom, if he was gonna enter into this mission of Messiah, he was gonna do it by starting with God himself, not the mission. He was not gonna do it by just meeting the needs of the people, the physical needs alone, although he did that at times, but not alone. This was not just gonna be a social project. It was gonna be a worship project. This was gonna be a worship project and it's the same with us, Redeemer. It's the same with us. It's this, in a sense what we sense as leaders God wants to, is, is doing with us at the moment. He's reminding us that you cannot separate these two things out. You cannot separate the feeding of the poor apart from worshiping God as God. You cannot separate the kingdom and the king. You can't just have the kingdom and have no king. You need the king. And this is the same for us. The kingdom of God is not just acts of social justice, not just it, it includes it, but we are depriving ourselves, starving ourselves and our people and the people that we interact with in our city. If we do not attempt to see their lives reconnected to the creator, reconnected to the father, reconnected and restored in their relationship with God. We cannot separate that. We cannot separate the love of God with the love of neighbor. It's interesting that um, Brian Zahn says this, that the biblical case for the love of God, the thing that would show you that you love God is that you do love your neighbor. And the thing that shows you that you do love your neighbor is that you love your enemy. There's like biblical tests there. But it all begins with this love of God. We cannot forget the love of God. And I want to speak this into our community, Redeemer. The church is not a social club. The church is not just a social charity. The church is not just a social project. The church is not just an enterprise of good works. 
The church is a people that are in love with God and that worship God. Man shall not live by good works alone. Man shall not live by social justice alone. Fill in the blank. Man shall not live by alone. We need God. We need to worship our King. This is what Easter is about. It's about welcoming the arrival of Christ as King, the one who is Lord, the one who reigns. Maybe you want to fill in the blank. Because what's a good idea? What's a good idea in your thinking that you're tempted by that would fit that line there? Man shall not live by money alone. Man shall not live by nice clothes alone. Man shall not live by comfortable living alone. Man shall not live by solid job alone. Man shall not live by decent salary alone. Man shall not live by good theology alone. Man shall not live by community alone. Man shall not live by attending church every other week alone. Man shall not live by good career options alone. Man shall not live by politics alone. Man shall not live by a healthy savings account alone. Man shall not live by a gym membership, a marriage, kids, nice house, two holidays a year alone. It's not enough. It's not enough. Man shall live by the words of God, the identity that he has spoken over you. So I want to say a few things over you. Malini, you're a daughter of God. God loves you and he's pleased with you. Handy, you're a son of God. God loves you and he's pleased with you. Sarah, you're a daughter of God and God loves you. He is pleased with you. Rachel, you're a daughter of God. God loves you and he's pleased with you. Sam, you're a son of God. God loves you and he's pleased with you. And for us who struggle sometimes with perhaps just faith, I love this little cheeky one from Jonathan Martin that says, man shall not live by white guys on stools deconstructing everything. Amen? Seriously? It is not enough. Some good ideas, it's not a waste of time, but it is not enough. It's not enough for our souls. Our souls collapse And Jesus knew this. Instantly, he cut this temptation down. We're made to be in the presence of God. We're made for relationship with him. We're made to be nurtured and sustained and nourished in his presence, filled with his spirit. We have to be. Otherwise, we just give up and go home. So is your soul satisfied in God today? We're a worshiping community. We're not ashamed to declare that Christ is king here, even when it doesn't seem like it when you look in your news or when you look in your city or you look in your family, Christ is king and we're to be a people that chase after the king and pursue him. Singing the song of the redeemed. Nobody became a worshiper accidentally. Nobody became like Jesus or becomes like Jesus accidentally. It just doesn't happen. It's like you gotta, you gotta do some stuff. You gotta show up. You gotta submit. You gotta invite the Spirit to make you like Christ. You gotta rely on the words of God. You gotta grow spiritually. 
I want to just speak something into our community. I really sense that there's a thing that we need to learn, and I include myself in this as a community, which is that we need to learn how to lead ourselves in worship. It's not on leaders alone. It's not on the band. It's not on the chord progression. It's not on the songs. It's not on how current or how old it is. But like Psalm 103, we have to master our own worship lives. We have to say to our own souls, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We have to learn to lead our souls to worship the king. And I believe the kingdom comes quickly after that. Once we get that right, the kingdom comes quickly after that. Let me skip on. The kingdom is not without a king and we can't live in the kingdom without the king. We live by God. His words defeat us when we worship him. We make space for his presence. So the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus, well, he wouldn't cooperate with the modern day notion of merely meeting those material needs. And he resisted this dark temptation, number one, to build his kingdom around such a promise, just meeting material needs. Number two, circuses. Dark temptation of Jesus that visits Jesus in, 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 in this passage. As he's thinking about how to go about his mission in the world, is this, the devil leads him in his mind to the pinnacle of the temple and invites him to throw himself off. A bit like a sort of miracle man stunt. Like just throw yourself off the temple, Jesus. And interestingly, the enemy really knows a little bit of scripture because the enemy throws in, the angels will leap to you and save you. He quotes a little bit of scripture there. Psalm 91 to be precise. It's a really good idea. It's a really good idea. It seems like it, I suppose. Backed up by scripture. But this is the temptation number two. Not material needs, but temptation number two is the draw of circus and spectacle. The people would be in awe of Jesus if he did this amazing act. They would just all suddenly worship him, suddenly follow him. And Jesus sees the subtlety of this temptation and and replies, it is also written. Again, Jesus knows his scriptures. Jesus knows his scriptures. It is also written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Cuts that one down. He does not succumb to the temptation to just be some kind of miracle man, circus act. It does raise the question, though, why wouldn't Jesus just show up and do something pretty cool like that? Because the city might actually believe if maybe he did something miraculous or if something crazy like that happened. Maybe people would flock to him if he was to perform a stunt or a sign or a miracle. Why doesn't Jesus just, sorry, why doesn't God just convince people? Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? Why does it require faith? I genuinely think that one instant objection to that line of thinking is that we probably would doubt it anyway because I doubt stuff all the time and I think you do too. We can be cynical. It's just magic. It's not real. Special effects. I'm amazed sometimes at how I can lack belief and I'm amazed at my, my cynicism. Jesus resists the lure of spectacle. Why? 
because there's a freedom that God has put into the system, so to speak, that God honors. It means that God doesn't force himself upon people. I'm not going to do the heavy lifting here. I'm going to ask C.S. Lewis to do it for me. Because in the screw tape letters, screw tape, the senior demon, instructing his nephew on how to tempt a man. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He's calling God and referring God to the enemy. He says this, you must have often wondered why the enemy, that's God, does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at, and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human's will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravage, ravish. He can only woo. Dostoevsky called this the miracle of restraint. Kierkegaard called this God's light touch. God does not override our freedoms. God does not want the kingdom to become like a puppet master, manipulating a puppet on a string just to believe. Instead, he woos us to trust him by faith. See, for us as followers of Jesus to enter the kingdom of God is not to be convinced in our minds with like the indisputable or the undeniable proof. Like if we only had proof, like if he jumped off the pinnacle of the temple, we could see. He's not going to download new code onto us like an operating system, like a robot, and just make us believe. We're authentic beings. We operate within this freedom, this human freedom that God has given us. And so we enter the kingdom of God, yes, by a leap, but not by a leap that we just talked about. We enter the kingdom of God with a leap of faith. We enter the kingdom of God with a leap of faith. Because Jesus came to liberate, not to turn the kingdom into a factory that just produces believers or a circus or a place of just sheer spectacle. He wasn't just about signs and wonders coming from the enemy. Yes, the one sign which he talks about in Matthew 12, I'll not read it because I'm running out of time, um, is the sign of Jonah. The sign of his resurrection was the only sign that he would leave because an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, Jesus says, but no sign will be given except that. So he's speaking there about resurrection. But he's not interested in convincing the crowds through shortcuts, tricks, or spectacle. He knew that the kingdom of God comes to inaugurate. He came to inaugurate and invites us in our freedom to choose him. So Redeemer, I suppose our dream, our hope, our desire is that this place, that this community is a place where we choose Jesus by faith. We follow him and choose him by faith. And we trust in his way. Here Jesus has resisted the second temptation to build his kingdom around the shallowness of circus and spectacle. We do love spectacle in our culture. You know, a little bit of Las Vegas for the soul. A little bit of, I don't know. We love that. In a sense, we're being formed by that. To be entertained 
to have the, something titillate us, to entertain us. We're not being formed, perhaps, unless we have the spirit within us to faith, to live deep lives of faith. Of course, when we enter the kingdom, we follow Jesus. When we're filled with the spirit, we can. We can. Here's the third temptation that comes to Jesus, and it's the big one. Third temptation that comes to Jesus is time to be Messiah. It's time to take the stage. It's time to lead. The third and final temptation is that the devil shows Jesus the kingdoms of the earth and all their glories. Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Make America great again. I don't know. Add your empire or kingdom to that list. And the devil invites Jesus to simply bow before him. And those kingdoms would be his. He would be given them instantly. If he would just bow down, it's all yours, Jesus. Was Jesus tempted by the devil? Yes, of course. Not the shiny red horned creature as we were saying, but the lure, the lure of seizing the world by force, by power. That was the lure here, that Jesus would begin his messianic ministry, bring the kingdom of God, but bring it by force, by power. I'm gonna read a little passage from Brian Zahn that really helps spell this out. Think about this. What could Jesus have accomplished if he had the same path to kingship as the pharaohs and Caesar? or even the Israelite kings of old? Could he have raised an army? Could he have become a general? Could he have been the second coming of Joshua or David? This is what people expected Messiah to do. Could Jesus have led an Israelite army into a victorious battle and liberate the Jewish people from the Roman oppression? Could Jesus have taken up the sword against Israel's enemies and beat them fine as dust before the wind? No doubt Jesus was capable of all of this and more. Could the miracle worker from Nazareth have led an army to march upon Rome and overthrow Caesar and install himself as the new emperor of a new empire? Who could doubt that Jesus was capable of all this? If Alexander the Great could conquer the world by the time he was 33, so could Jesus of Nazareth. Of course there would be a crucial difference. The motive would always be to achieve righteousness and justice. Here's the essential bit that Brian shares, but it would not be the way of God. It would not be the way of God. That's when Jesus saw this temptation for what it was, a temptation to bow down to the Satan, and Jesus thundered instantly, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If Jesus had grabbed the ring of power, it would have corrupted even him. Was Jesus giving up on his mission to save the world by refusing to take the devil up on this offer? No, he was gonna go on to be a Messiah, a savior and a liberator, but not by the sword, but by the cross. Later, Jesus suggests, do you remember later Jesus suggests to Peter that he's gonna end up following the path to crucifixion? And Peter says to him, um, Peter says this, what does Jesus Peter rebukes Jesus and instantly Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. And then do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is being arrested and then one of his disciples actually literally takes a sword and cuts the ear off of a soldier and Jesus says no and he heals the soldier. 
This is Jesus resisting the dark temptation to build a kingdom around the enticement of power, of violence, or of the sword. Here's a question for us then. So what price would we pay to gain the ultimate prize? Where in our lives do we seek to use power, exercise force? Where have we bought into the lie that the kingdom would come by power and force? Where have we conspired in what I think maybe is accurate devil, devil worship, satanic thinking, wrong thinking about how this thing works when we go for the power grab? This is not of the kingdom. What a beautiful faithfulness Jesus shows in the wilderness that he would subvert the world's power structures and bring liberating, healing, messianic deliverance by other means, by humble, meek surrender and subversion. To prioritize power is to worship the devil. But the upside down kingdom, the good news, Redeemer, is that we're of the kingdom of God, which is not established by power or coercion, but by the foolishness of the cross. And so for us, for those willing to lose their lives in worship, in adoration to the king, for the crucified and murdered king of the Jews, the world will be reordered and God will use us in the reordering. This is what saves the world, the crucified king on the cross, his example. This is what saves the world, his example, the way that he went to the cross, the way that he is beginning his project. It's not by any of these temptations that lay before him, but it is a different way. And this is why we follow him. It is a way of surrender. It is the way of humility. It is the way of love. This is our king. This is our king. And so this is the king that we're going to follow next week and the following week as we move towards Easter. Fortified in this passage by his victory, Jesus passed the test that the Israelite kings had previously failed. And with his mission ahead of him, he then climbs a hill and he announces the manifesto of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, a new world had dawned. Jesus walked through the checkpoint onto the road to Easter. Redeemer, in the same way as Jesus resisted the temptations before him to find his identity or his story in material needs being met, in spectacle and show or in power, we too can resist those temptations to live the way of Jesus in the world. We are being invited as a people to worship God. We are being invited to trust in him and we're being invited to live his way of love in the world. I'd love us to stand. I'd love to lead us in prayer. I'd love to invite the band up.
about to we're about to come to the table, and um, before we do that, I'd love to just lead us in a prayer that would pr- would just to pray into these three these three things we've been discussing this morning, and how I just want to pray into that for us as a community, and then I want to lead us to the to the table, um, because the table is the body of Christ, the bread here, and for us who do not live by bread alone. We can come to the bread of life as Jesus revealed himself, as he described his own body as bread and gave it to us as a way to remember and celebrate and declare the reality of his kingdom in our midst. And so the bread is here for us to participate in that reality, in that new world. I would love to invite you to come to celebrate Christ. But let me just first pray. Please do close your eyes. Join with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Christ. We thank you for his example to us. We thank you that he is the perfect one, the beautiful one. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to follow his example. That we would not live simply by the immediate physical goods and goals that lie before us by bread alone, but that we would be a community that is nourished deeply by the word of God. That we would see ourselves as sons and daughters of God. That we would be formed differently in the way of Jesus. We pray that for our community. We pray that we would be not taken in by spectacle but that we would be a people of faith and that we would be led to take steps of faith to trust you, Lord. And Lord, we resist the power grabs in our lives and we pray, Holy Spirit, would you help us to surrender, to surrender to what you're doing in our lives, to surrender from the power grabs and to trust you and to come with a humility. Fill us, we pray. Fill us with worship, we pray. Fill us with your presence, we pray. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Make us a worshiping church, we pray. In Jesus' name. Please do come. Come and take bread and wine. Connell and the guys will lead us.